Hi, Brett Johnson here, former United States Most Wanted criminal, now good guy, and host of The Brett Johnson Show. Hey, what we're doing is, starting last week, I released two episodes of the Anglerfish podcast for the next 14 weeks. I'm releasing some of these Anglerfish podcast episodes, basically the first 28 episodes. My life story, I bring in friends, family members, professional associates. We talk about the shit that Brett Johnson has done. Not only that, but how how I was given this opportunity to turn my life around and that whole way that I found redemption and found meaning in helping people, not hurting people. So that's the first 28 episodes of the Anglerfish podcast. I'm rebroadcasting those in addition to the weekly show that I have on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, etc. Please realize there is not a video component to these shows. It's all audio. Back then, I didn't have the money to buy a camera. So the audio is not great either, but I think the content is well worth listening to. Um, I truly do. So please enjoy what we're broadcasting today is parts three and four. Parts three is the second half of me talking with my sister about my mom. You know, lions, tigers, and mom, oh my. From there, we talk about my father, the enabler. That's part four. And my dad was a good guy. My dad had a lot of problems. My dad's major issue was he was scared of my mom leaving. So he became this enabler. If she wanted to abuse someone, he wouldn't step in the way. And if she wanted to commit a crime, he would co-sign on to it. So we talk about that as well. So please enjoy parts three and four of the Anglerfish podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like the content, please subscribe. Leave me some feedback as well. I always read every single bit of feedback, and I often, well, most of the time, I even respond to it. So thank you again for listening. Please enjoy, for lack of a better word. Shannon, Denise, come here. Denise and me, we look at each other. Dad is at work. He works at 7-Eleven for $170 a week as a midnight clerk. And let me tell you, 1983, $170 a week, trying to support a family of four, pay rent, utilities, buy food, all that bullshit, not really working out very well. But you know what? That's the only job he could get, so he took it we had to eat. Mom, well, mom's a nurse, but her being able to keep a job for more than a few weeks is an impossibility. So we're alone with her. And when it's just us and her, weird shit can happen. I looked at my sister, better see what she wants. Denise and me, we put down the Atari controllers and walk into the living room. Come here, I want to talk to you. Now, Mom has brought two dining room chairs into the middle of the living room, set them up facing each other. She's got all the lights out, candles burning, incense burning. Me and Denise are sitting there going, Okay, you know Mommy loves you more than anything, right? Denise is looking at her, standing a bit behind me. I guess Denise thought I could somehow protect her. I look at my mom. Yes, Mom? And you know I would do anything in the world for you and your sister. Yes, Mom? Come and sit down. I want to tell you two something. We moved to sit in the dining room chairs. Not there, she said. I have to tell you something first. Denise and me, we don't move. Usually, this means some big speech about love and loss. Sometimes, she'll pretend to burn herself with a cigarette to show us how much she actually loves us. We don't know what the hell's going on with those chairs, though, so we just kind of stand right where we are. 
Come, sit on the sofa, my mom said, but with a bit more force this time. Denise and me, we go over, sit down on the couch. Mom on one end, me in the middle, Denise on the far side. Mom, like I said, she has this incense burning, has just the candlelight going on. I looked at my mom. What is it, mom? Now, Carol Sue sits there looking at us, weighing the importance of what she's about to tell us. That was my mom always being as dramatic as possible, and she was a horrible actor. You always knew when she was going to say something that was full of shit. She adopted this persona of a really bad soap opera actor, went into these bad Shakespearean gestures and voices, and then announced her edict or wisdom for the day. So Carol Sue sat there sizing us up, probably hoping we would be able to grasp the import of what she was going to share with us. I did something tonight for you and your sister. Ah! So I'm expected to be a respondent in this production. I can do that! What is it, Mom? I ask. She looks at me and Denise for a minute, then leans in close and quiet. Tonight... I sold my soul to Satan. Oh, God. Mom, please. I don't want to hear this. Just let us go back to our room. I did. I did it for you and Denise. Please, Mom, don't. Now, Denise, Denise isn't saying anything. She's just kind of sitting there letting it all sink in. I didn't realize until much later that Denise was often terrified of my mother. By this time, though, I had adopted the psychology of my father. I knew my mom was full of shit, but figured it was my duty to put up with her craziness. I mean, hey, that is what you do when you love someone, right? I have sold my soul to the devil so that you and Denise can have a good life. The Lord Satan has agreed to let me live to see you both get out of college, and be successful. Now she stops, lets that little bombshell sink in, and then she continues. Once you are both happy and successful, the devil will come and take me home. Mom, please don't say that, okay? Please. You both have to be told this. You both have to understand. Okay, Mom, we understand. Can we go back to our room now? No. And Mom looks pointedly at that point to those two dining room chairs sitting in the middle of the floor. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck. I looked at my mom. What? I have to make sure you and your sister can't be taken over by Satan. What? Sit in that chair there. I get up, sit down in the chair. Mom sits in the opposite one facing me. Now... Shannon, because Shannon is the name I used to go by before I turned to Brett. Now, Shannon, here is what is going to happen. Mom says this, kind of lowers her head, says the next few words kind of this little low growl. We are going to sit across from each other. It's important to keep eye contact. Don't blink. I am going to let Satan come out through me. You have to keep thinking good thoughts. As long as you don't blink, nothing will happen. As long as you keep thinking pure thoughts, nothing will happen. Satan can't possess you as long as you do. I looked at my mom. Now this, 
This is some next level crazy shit tonight. I know, I know it's bullshit, but at the same time, I'm only like 12 years old, Denise is nine, so there's a part of me that's sitting there saying, it could be real. I looked at my mom, mom, I don't want to do this, please. You each have to. It's the only way, the only way to be safe. I have to make sure you and Denise are going to be okay. So we sat there, facing each other, not saying a word. Mom let the hatred and evil come out through her eyes, and I sat there defending myself, thinking happy Jesus thoughts and steady eye contact. I don't know how long I sat there being tested, but I guess it was long enough. Mom finally breaks eye contact, sits back. That's good. You really do love your mommy. Yes, Mom. Denise, come over here. You know, I still remember. I still remember Denise sitting in that chair, across from her mother, trying not to blink. Such was the life of Brett and Denise Johnson. When Dad was home, we tended to be left alone. Every now and then, Mom would bring out a cigarette and perform the old fake cigarette loveburn trick. But mostly, she was concentrated on attacking my father. Welcome to this episode of the Anglerfish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. How did I get that title? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's Darknet and Darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. Mom leaves my dad. We all moved to Eastern Kentucky. Me, Denise, and Mom moved to Eastern Kentucky. And she starts to date these guys. There's no other way to say it. They're fucking idiots, man. The first guy she dated was this guy named Nick Nichols, who had murdered his girlfriend, claimed that he had a blackout when the murder happened, and gotten off on it. Right. He had never served a day of prison time, so mom comes home and is kind of bragging about this. Oh, he owns his own coal company? Yes, he murdered this girl, but he doesn't remember it. It wasn't his fault. So she starts to date these murderers and telling us about it. So then she meets Jimmy Branson, 
Eventually. Eventually. After several months of this, she meets Jimmy. There was some drugs involved in there that, was, There was. There was a lot because she was addicted to Valium. She was doing opiates. I was wondering if maybe there were drugs involved with Nick Nichols as well. Oh, absolutely. Nick Nichols was a Coke dealer. And the way she met Jimmy, she was at this place called the Colonial Club. She's walking in. Jimmy is standing outside with a couple of his buddies. And Jimmy, because he was that suave, debonair guy, as mom is walking in, he looks at her and he's like, hey, baby, how about you and me go and make some babies? And what does mom do? She stops right there, looks at him up and down and says, let's go. That story was retold many times. Many times. She was proud of this story. So they start dating each other, and you can talk about some of that, because you told me this one story, because mom used to take us, we would all go to Jimmy's trailer, Jimmy would load up his boys, and when I say his boys, I mean his buddies, and go to this trailer that he had on Lake in Tennessee, me, you, and mom would go with him, one bedroom trailer, Jimmy and mom would spend the weekend in the trailer screwing, while me and you hung out with his boys. Now, we were minors. You were maybe 13. One of them takes a liking to you. As far as that's concerned, I remember being there at that trailer. And I wasn't completely stupid. I mean, I knew what was up. I tried to avoid him so I could avoid being molested. She knew. I mean, she had to have known. She saw what this person was doing. And I remember you and I were sleeping in his Bronco, in the back of the Bronco. And so it was summer, so it was hot, so we had the windows down. So she's in the bedroom with Jimmy in the trailer. And he's drinking quite a bit. And he comes out, unlocks the door, and climbs in the Bronco and starts climbing back in the back with you and I. And I was like, oh, hell no. I know what's up here. That's not happening to me today. And so I get out of the Bronco, push past him, get out of the Bronco. I go in the door to the bedrooms closed. There's all these guys in this trailer. And so I push past all of them. I go to the door. I bang on the door. The door is locked. And they're basically like, go away. And I was like, no. So I keep banging. I'm a nuisance. So finally, the door opens. And mom's got like a sheet around her and he's in the bed naked. And I'm like, this guy is in the Bronco and he crawls in there with us and Brett's still out there. And Jimmy's like, oh, he's a good guy, blah, blah, blah. She's like, oh, nothing. I was like, no, Brett's still out there. You've got to go get him. And I'm thinking, you know, I know he was going to molest me. I knew that was coming. Right, right. But he's still in the Bronco with Brett, and so he's going to molest Brett. And you've got to go do something. You've got to go get him or make the guy get out of the Bronco. She doesn't. She doesn't. She just gets back in the bed with him. And so she's like, you can lay on the floor here beside us. And I'm like, no, you've got to go get him. And I'm so sorry. Well, you know, I'm I, so I was sorry <laughs> because I was too terrified to go. And I hated being in the bedroom with 
with her and this guy in the bed, you know, having sex. And I'm like, but I was too terrified to go help you. And I was too terrified to leave. You know, if I was with you, I felt safe. But then that guy came and I was like, I knew what was going to happen. Well, and the, I'm sorry. No, I, I just see, you don't, I, I should have went back out there and tried to help you. To me, I should be the one apologizing. I was the brother, the older one. I should have been protecting you during that time. Well, see, that's what mom used to tell you. She used to tell you that you had to protect me. So I became that protector. That was a lot of my duty. And, and she knew that. When she separated from dad, a couple of the separations that went on when we were kids, she would always tell me and you that our dad was not our dad, that she had cheated on dad, and he was not her father. And then when she was with these other men, especially when she was Jimmy, and I don't know if you ever knew that or not, but she would... You know, they started running this illegal coal mine, and she would go up to that, and she would come home and tell me how Jimmy had raped her and wanted me to do something about it. Wow. And when you're that young, I mean, you don't know that, that your mom's just kind of fucking with you, that she's just a, being an abusive parent, you know, manipulating you and everything else. So I would believe that, man. I would believe that Jimmy had raped her, had beaten and raped her over the weekend, so here I am. Let's fight. Let's take care of that shit right now. You know, I think you came to terms with that abuse. Mom was an abusive person. She could be physical, but it was mostly the mental, emotional, verbal oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, she could be physical. I remember her. There was a lot of mental. I remember her beating us with the buckle end of the belt. Until we got old enough to take it away from uh -huh. her. Uh-huh. Until finally one day she was doing that, and it was over nothing. And... Every time the latch on the belt would hit you, yeah. it would make a blood blister. Yeah, it, it would definitely leave a mark. And so I remember that last one, and I was like, I've had it with your shit. Yeah. You're not going to do that to me anymore. I was, I was down. I was on the bed in a trailer, and she was beating us. And I was like, fuck this. And so... I just hauled back with both feet and kicked her. Do you remember that? Through and I, I kicked her through the closet door. And she got back up, and of course she was livid. And when she got like that, that's when she wanted more than just blood. She wanted to kill you. And so every time she got up and headed toward me, I'd kick her again. I was like, no, I'm done. You're not doing that to me anymore. That's the end of that. So that stopped the beatings. <laughs> For the most part. You knew when she got a weapon that you're in trouble. And the thing is, she was sneaky. Do you remember Jimmy and the spaghetti sauce? Oh, yeah. So she decided she was going to kill him, I guess, one of the times she decided. And so we'd come in. You had gotten enough money, that's a whole story, to buy that used Cadillac. And it would overheat. And so... We came in from school, and she smiled at us and said, don't eat the spaghetti sauce. You knew something was wrong because it was the tone of voice and the way she would smile. Yeah. And so I looked at you. You had went down the hall like toward the bathroom. And I was like, dude. She don't done, eat the spaghetti she sauce, something dude. to the spaghetti sauce. <laughs> I was like, thumbs up. And so she had poisoned the spaghetti sauce with... Decon, well, then it was later that she gave him she digitalis. digitalis. She put digitalis in his food to affect his heart. Right. I was like, holy fuck. And so basically, you're all eating, right? We're having a meal because she's cooked. 
wow. And that in itself should be an alarm bell. And you know that what he's eating is poison. But you don't dare say a word because if you say something, you're the next target. And so, anyway. Yeah, you're the next on the list. I don't know list. if she's psychotic. <laughs> you know, her dad, he was totally crazy. Like, he heard was crazy. things that weren't there. And he saw things that weren't there. Fire guns in the house. And it was a hair trigger. You didn't know which side he was on. He and she nice was like that too. No, he could literally be nice one right. second and, and just yeah. the, the meanest person on the planet the next. Absolutely. Yeah. The next I want to be clear to people out there listening. This was not just something that happened mm -hmm. while we were children or once. A lot of people out there have heard me talking about me and you being eight and nine probably. Dad is at work. We're at the house alone with mom. We're in the bedroom playing Atari and we hear mom yelling for us, Shannon, Denise, come here. And we're both like, what now? So we walk in the living room and mom's got all the lights out. She's got these candles burning, got the incense going on. And she's got these two kitchen chairs set up and she looks at us. She's like, I want to talk to you. We're like what mother? I have sold my soul All the bad choices to she made were choices she had to make, and it was because of us. And this time it was because she wanted to see us through college. Once we both graduated from college, the Lord Satan was going to call her home. But we had to prove that we were worthy. And the way we proved that we were worthy, we would sit and face her and keep eye contact. We couldn't blink. And she would let Lord Satan come out through her eyes, and we were supposed to think happy Jesus thoughts and defend ourselves against the possession of it Satan. Wasn't that much of a and you were the no, first one on the hook. I mean, seriously, there was so much bad shit going on that it was not such a stretch to think that there was Satan or the devil inside her. Oh, no, no. And it continued past when we were children. That. I mean, I you went to Berea. conversation morphing into fight the devil in me. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. same version. Or I'm going to tell you this story about this woman that moved to a foreign land. Yep. And she had children. And the invaders were coming in. Yep. And they were going to kill those children. Well, she would leave. And then she'd say that we were the children. Absolutely. And she was going to kill us, and it was necessary. Or if it wasn't that, it was always, and this was common. Convince me I don't have to kill you. She would be sitting there, and we'd be going to school, about to go to school, or just come home from school, and it would start. It would be like, one of these days I'm going to leave and never come back. One of these days you're going to find me dead behind a service station. I'm better off dead than being here with you. I've given up everything for you. Yeah. It was always that. And it continues today as an adult. You know, you've not talked to mom. I really had a conversation with her, I think probably a decade or longer. Oh, it's been longer than that. It's been like 15 yeah. years. Yeah, you got away from it before I was able to. And it took me many more years to, to come to terms with the abuse. But you went to Berea. Berea is one of the top 50 schools in the United States. It's a free college. You worked your ass off to get through it and everything else. Mom finds out that you have a boyfriend in Berea. So what does she do? And I was there. Mom loads up, gets me in the car, gets her mom in the car, drives to Berea. She walks into the president's office and proceeds to tell the president that 
your boyfriend at the time, his name was Mark, tells the president of Berea College that Mark is a drug dealer and a pimp and has you hooked on drugs and that you're prostituting yourself and that she wants you thrown out of school because that's the best thing that can happen. That way you can come back home. Then she proceeds to go down to where Mark is living, tells all the neighbors the exact same thing, and almost gets you thrown out of college because mom is very convincing. As you said, she's very charismatic. She's very convincing. The only thing that happens is, is that she cannot sustain the lie long enough. These lies start to fall apart because she's crazy at the same time. So that's the only thing that really saved you was that the lie started to fall apart before you could be thrown out. She, what the college told me is that she had went to each of the departments. She had. It was all day long. Everybody. It was all day and long. so since it was a religious school based on Christianity, they actually brought me up on charges to see if they were going Jeez. to kick me out of the school. And I think, you know, really what it amounted to was not so much that I had a boyfriend. What it amounted to was I was not home with her and she was losing control sure. over me. Well, and she wanted me point. to be there so she could manipulate me and have me under her thumb. I was her that. property. We, that, exactly. We were property. So if we've ever had a relationship that interferes with us being her property, we should only love her. So if we, if we ever love anyone else, she takes offense to that and tries to do whatever she can to stop it. Like your current husband, she's been very big about through the years saying that he cheats on you, that people have told her that he's cheating on you, blah, 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 blah. She's done the exact same thing with my first wife, with Michelle now. She's always trying to end those relationships. Yeah, even with our friends. I never had friends really growing up. We moved so much, but it was more than that. She didn't even want you playing with other kids. You know, it was... I need to know where you are and what you're doing. Your attention should be going to me. And, you know, even when my friend Carol in high school, I went to um, church with her because, you know, Jesus needs to fight the devil inside her. <laughs> so that occasionally going to church with her would be okay. So the youth group of the church went to Pizza Hut. She decided that Carol was a threat to her. And so... There was a whole fiasco at the Pizza Hut where she came in and made quite a scene and cussed out the visiting preacher and the preacher's wives. And anyway, there were adults that were there too, and they all got it. So I went and got in the car hoping to draw her away from attacking them to the car. And so she got in the car and she said, don't even think about jumping out of this car. And so I jumped out of the car. Of course. The car was moving. <laughs> I was like, you know what? That's a good idea right there. That's the, probably the best That's plan the right there. The best thing I could do is get <laughs> as far as possible away from you. And so anywhere would probably be better than this. I jumped out of the car, and she proceeded to try to hit me with the car. Those adults had seen that. So to make a long story short, Carol went to Berea. So when they brought me up on charges at Berea, they said, you know, she says that you're on drugs and you've been brainwashed and this guy is pimping you out. And I'm thinking, what the hell? You know, there's been some attempted pimping out done, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't from him. 
<laughs> I kind of left that. You know, I feel like a lot of my childhood was spent trying to avoid being molested. I was constantly trying to avoid that right. as best I could as a kid. I was not always successful. And so anyway, I said to the guy at Berea when he called me in and told me that we're bringing you up on charges, you're going to meet and there's going to have a hearing. And I said, listen, my mother is crazy. And of course he didn't believe me. And I said, okay, so here's the deal. You need to call Jim and Jane Miller. They are Carol's guardians. So that's what saved you right there. They called Jim and Jane Miller and they called me back in and you know what they said to me? We're going to protect you. Jesus. There man. are no charges anymore. We're taking you off all our records. So if someone calls the college looking for you, you are no longer in our directory and we're going to move your dorm. So that's the only thing that's saved we're going you right to, there. Exactly. We're going to put you in another dorm so nobody knows you're here yeah. and nobody knows where you are. I'm so sorry They can't sorry walk that, in please. and find you. And but so had, the college uh, basically... They protected me for yeah. the remainder of time that I went to school there because they realized, I don't know what Jim and Jane told them. And really, Jim and Jane had only seen little, they saw the downtown Pizza Hut incident. Right. They didn't have a clue really how bad it was at home for us. I don't think they knew at all what we really were going through. You know, you're always the one that was wanting to get away from it. You got away from it before I did. I had tried to, you, you didn't know this, but she had worked for a little while as a nurse before she got fired for stealing drugs off the medicine cart. She'd put stuff in her pockets, and so she had brought home like a syringe, right. an empty syringe. I had gotten in, we had a bedroom then, remember? Right. First time we'd had a bedroom in years, we'd slept on the living room floor for a long time, and then finally they got a pull-out sofa. But we finally got a room, which we shared. And so I'd gotten in the closet and actually filled that syringe up with air and put the syringe. I corded off my arm, put the syringe in my vein, and I was going to inject air into my vein so that I would either, you know, stroke out or cause my heart to stop. That was the goal. But in the closet, I decided, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm going to survive. That's what I'm going to do. This is not going to be the end of me. I will overcome this. I finally, it was like my mind just fixated on, I am going to make it out of this. And I do not and will not have to live this way and do this anymore. I will make it out of here. And when my chance comes, I'm taking it. I'm really glad you, you were able to get away from it. I guess it's that Eastern Kentucky mentality. You know, the male is expected to stick around. So that's what I did. And, of course, Mom drugged me to every single crime and everything else she was committing and all that. The first girlfriend I had was Christy Roberts. And Mom tried like hell to end that. I was in theater, man, and I had, that, had a scholarship. A guy comes in from San Jose State, sees me on stage. He's the head of the theater department in San Jose sees me on stage and offers me a four-year full-paid scholarship to San Jose State University, and I took it. I took that. He goes back home. He flies back in a couple weeks later to talk to me. I'm, I'm in Airport Gardens. He gets out of the car, and I walk up to him. I'm like, hey, let me walk you in. He's like, no, I'll go in and introduce yourself to your mom. I'm like, okay. So he walks in. He's in there maybe 10 or 15 minutes, walks out, doesn't say a word to me, gets in the car, drives off, and I never hear from the guy again. 
And it took me a few weeks to find out that what had happened was he gets in there and tells my mom that I'm going to uh, be a big star in California. And she gets a knife, looks at him and says, I will kill you right where you stand, you son of a bitch, if you try to steal my son. And he gets so scared that he leaves and I never hear from the guy again. It took me another three or four years. I got married to Susan after that, about three years later. We're going to continue our next episode talking about, of all people, Dad! We'll see how that goes. But as, as you can tell by listening, we handle this. We process it a lot differently. I process it with a lot of laughter because I think that if I took time to look back at it, that I may not stop crying or whatever. I think she handles it a lot better. She doesn't really uh, look at it with a lot of humor. No, I don't find it funny. I mean, right. you might hear me laughing. It's not because I'm amused or I find it even slightly funny. You know, I... I find it deadly serious, and it's something that it breaks you. And it does. It's amazing. You're what, not uh, going to completely recover from. You can survive, and you can take strength in the thought that you've survived. But it's always going to warp your perspective. And you know, it's amazing what what a parent or what an adult can do to a child with their actions. All right, so that was part three. We're going directly into part four of the Anglerfish podcast. My father, the enabler. Thank you for listening. Every Sunday, Dad watched 60 Minutes come hell or high water. This one particular Sunday, 60 Minutes was doing a segment on the drug trade in Miami. They were showing the pallets of cocaine, the tables of cash, all that bullshit they were seizing, and Dad, Dad sat there locked into it like a motherfucker. Mom noticed the attention Dad was giving the TV, looks over at him and asks, Ray, what is so damn interesting? Dad glances over, shut the hell up a minute, Carolyn. Now, Mom was not used to that, so hell, it must be something pretty important, so she starts watching TV too. Denise and me, we have no friggin' clue what's so interesting about Miami. No idea what cocaine is, anything else like that. We know Mom and Dad are watching something important on TV, and we know to be quiet. That segment ends, Dad gets up, walks over, turns the TV off, goes back and sits down in his chair pretty heavy. He sits there quiet for a few minutes, just kind of thinking, Mom sits there quiet as well, and you can actually see the cogs turning in her head. Finally, my dad looks over at my mom. I think I'm going to go see about being a police officer in Miami. My mom, yeah. You know, we might be able to make some money down there, dad says. Mom, yeah. So dad, the next day, calls around and finds out that the Miami-Dade Police Department was most certainly hiring and that his military service would also be considered and he'd be given credit for such. So basically they were saying, hey, Mr. Johnson, you were a captain in the army? Oh shit, yeah, come on down because we need some help rounding up all these drug dealers. A little later that day, dad sits me down and explains his grand plan. It's like this, son. I figure all I gotta do is find just one of those drug deals. I'm not gonna bust them, just gonna tell them to go on their way, take their drugs with them, but leave the cash. I looked at my dad, that'll work? Dad looks at me, of course it'll work. Nobody wants to go to prison for their life. I looked at dad, but look, look, dad says, they get to keep their drugs. All I'm asking for is the cash that's there. 
One score like that, we've got it made. I looked at Dad, um, what if they just shoot you instead? Dad pauses, looks at me for a minute like I'm a fucking idiot. They ain't going to shoot nobody. All us cops are going to be there. Now, I consider this for a second. Then I say, Dad, if all those cops are going to be there, how are you going to walk away with all the money? At this point, Dad's mouth drops slightly open. Ha! Got you on that one, didn't I, Ray Johnson? But then he regains his composure, looks at me smugly, and says, All I gotta do is give everybody a cut. You saw how much money there is there. Plenty for everybody, and everybody walks away happy. I sit there shaking my head. I don't know, Dad. Dad looks at me, well, I do. It will work, I know. And that was the end of the discussion. So $6,000, that's how much they had. They had an old Chrysler that we had bought at the auto auction. We loaded it full, rented a U-Haul, packed the rest of the house in the U-Haul, and then we set off south for Miami-Dade. Now, I don't know if God exists. I fancy that he or she might, but you know, you just never know. I have what I like to call the Langston Hughes problem, a severe lack of faith. I do know that if God exists, that he or she has a really dark sense of humor because we arrived in Miami, Florida, May 18, 1980. Now, what is important about that date? May 18 marks the date the Miami riots started in earnest. Four Miami-Dade police officers were acquitted in the death of Arthur McDuffie. McDuffie was a salesman and former Marine. He died from injuries sustained following a high-speed chase. The officers were tried and acquitted of manslaughter and evidence tampering. The city exploded. They were the most violent riots since the 1960s and would remain the most violent until the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles in 1992. You see, the cops, Arthur McDuffie was an African-American. They were chasing him. Arthur McDuffie wrecks his car. The cops drag him out, literally beat the guy to death. They try to cover it up. When the city finds out, the city explodes. So we get there the night that things really got going. Mom and Dad had never been to Miami, didn't know a thing about it. We pulled into the first Days Inn we spotted off of the interstate. Turns out that Days Inn was right next to an overpass, and living beneath the overpass were all these homeless people set up in their little shanties. I still remember some of the recliners they had set up outside, and I kept thinking to myself, hell, they're homeless, but they've got recliners. I kept wondering how a person without a home could have a recliner. I mean, how did he get it down there? So Dad pays the hotel bill, we go in, turned on the TV. All the channels, of course, were broadcasting about the riot that was going on right outside of our door. Mom looks at Dad, Raging, where the hell have you brought us? Mom was not happy. Mom kept looking out the window at the homeless people across the way. She'd look out the window, then back at Dad. Guess she thought it was his fault all those folks were out over there. Dad kept looking at the TV, taking in the riot and everything that was going on. You could see in his face he was thinking this whole cop idea might not be the piece of cake he was thinking. Mom looks at Dad, we can't stay here, Ray Jean. Dad, Carolyn, hush. Mom, do you not see what's going on out there? We can't stay here. Just look out there. They could come over here anytime. Dad looks at Mom, those people aren't rioting, Carolyn. They're just homeless. Mom, just homeless? I saw the way they were looking at us when we pulled in. Probably steal everything we have in the truck tonight. Dad looks at Mom. Would it make you feel better if I slept in the truck tonight? Mom, sleep in the truck and leave us here alone? 
Dad obviously doesn't understand. What? Mom looks at Dad in disgust. She couldn't believe he could be that stupid. And leave us here to be raped and killed, Ray Jean. Dad sighs heavily. Carolyn. Mom, don't you Carolyn me. You saw those people. It's right there on the news. Dad just sighs again. Don't you sigh at me, you son of a bitch. The next day, Dad goes to cop school. Me, Denise, and Mom are staying in the hotel room. They had a pool outside. We wanted to go to it, but Mom had yelled something about whores when we asked if we could. So we sat there for most of the day. Dad comes home that evening looking pretty happy. Looks at Mom. I think it's going to work. Mom smugly smiles. Good. Mom smiles smugly. Day two, Dad goes to cop school, comes back that evening. Dad is looking really rejected. Mom looks at Dad. What happened, Ray Jean? Dad looks at Mom. They're crazy, Carolyn. Crazy? What do you mean? Well, we were in cop training when the Miami-Dade police officers burst in and arrested nine people. Mom looks at Dad. Arrested nine people? Dad looks over at Mom. Arrested nine people. Turns out they had outstanding warrants. Turns out they were looking to be police officers so they could happen upon a drug deal, keep the cash, and let the drug dealers take the drugs. Mom looks at Dad. I'm not staying here, Ray Jean. Dad looks at Mom. Carolyn, we really don't have much money left. Well, we've got enough to get out of here. Dad looks at Mom again. Carolyn, don't you Carolyn me. I'm not staying here. So at that point, Mom and Paul Johnson Load up in the U-Haul and we start heading north on I-75. Welcome to this episode of the Angler Fish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. How did I get that title? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's Darknet and Darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. Sue, the mother, the abuse, some of the effects it had, some of the survival techniques we learned, stuff like that. Of course, that was not the only parent in the house. No, we had another one. There was another one. It was Dad, Ray Johnson. So, Dad, you know, I guess the last episode, one of the lessons, and I mentioned this, was how Carol Sue always, how Mom always tested things for love. You know, she would put you through all this abuse to see if you would come back. Will you still love me after I do all this? And dad was, dad was not the same. Dad 
from my viewpoint, you may be different, Denise. You may be, Denise is with me again today. You may be different on that, but from my viewpoint, dad was the guy that loved mom so much, he was scared of losing her, so he became this enabler. Absolutely, yeah. You know, so if she had an idea, he would support the idea. No matter how crazy it was. If there was some sort of abuse, he would either put up with it, you know, happening to him, or he would allow it to happen, happen to us. Like I remember, yes. and we didn't mention this the last episode, and I, I'm trying to get away from Carol Sue, but she's just so pervasive in this. I remember that, that one time that mom and dad were, la- were in the bedroom. Dad was on one side of the bed reading. Mom was on the other side of the bed raising hell. And she calls us in. She calls me and you. Shannon and Denise, come here. Yep. We walk Gotta in. I have an audience. And as we walk into the bedroom, dad is, please, Carolyn, just stop. That was another of his catchphrases. Please just stop. Just stop. So she calls us over to her side of the bed. And she used to smoke these more brand cigarettes, these long brown yeah. cigarettes, right? And she's like, you know I love you and your sister. And we're like, yes, Mama. Well, I'm going to show you how much I love you. And Dad's like, Carolyn, please, please just stop. So she takes the cigarette and she pretends to burn herself. She doesn't burn herself, but she says, this is how much I love you. And she pretends to burn herself. So I'm I'm sitting here watching. I'm standing there watching it. She's not touching her skin with a cigarette. It's far enough apart so it's not burning her. But she's pretending that it's burning her. She's screaming and crying and everything else. And my mind at that point was like, you've just told us you're going to prove how much you love us by burning yourself with a cigarette, but you're not burning yourself. So does that mean you don't love us? So that was what stuff dad allowed to happen. He would put up with that. He would put up with her bringing men home in front of him. He would beg her not to do it. She would still do it. He would put up with her trying to kill him. Or us. Or us. He would, uh, he would put up with her faking car accidents to get the money or faking a stolen car. He would help her with that. Arson. Same stuff, burning places. Yes, I remember trying that. To, trying to, my, my great-grandfather, he had this Winchester rifle that was worth $20,000. She had an idea to try to steal it. Well, she did. <laughs> you remember, he helped her steal some stuff on several occasions, and I can remember them talking about Dad flying drugs. Do you remember that story? So I I talk about this some in presentations. And what happened was, for those who don't know, those who haven't seen a couple of my presentations where I actually talk about that, Dad was mining coal. He he drops out of the military as a helicopter pilot, goes into coal mining. With the coal mining, back then, you were on strike more often than than you were working. So you were collecting unemployment and on food stamps trying to provide for your family more than you were actually mining coal. So Dad was a helicopter pilot. He had this, this buddy, someone that he knew. His name was Tommy Allen Combs. So we all load up in the vehicle. We drive to Glomar. That's where Tommy yes. Allen lived. It was a place called Glomar. We drive to Glomar, and we meet Tommy Allen. And our first meeting, you may, not, you may be too young to remember this, but our first meeting, Tommy Allen is sitting on the porch. He's got chickens in the yard. Tommy Allen is ch- sitting on the porch. He's got a slingshot a pail of pebbles, of rocks, and he's trying to hit the chickens with the rocks, with a slingshot. 
And I thought that was the, I mean, hell, we're like six at this point, six and seven. I thought that was the greatest thing in the friggin' world, man. Give me that slingshot. Of course, I think you tried it too. None of us could hit the chickens, but it was fun to try. And dad is up there because Tommy Allen had served prison time. He had been involved with the cornbread mafia, which is a real thing. Yeah. He had been involved with the cornbread mafia. Dad wanted to fly drugs back and forth across the Mexican-Texas border to make money. And Tommy Allen is, is basically putting him through the interview process. You know, are you willing to do this? You understand if you tell on anybody that they, they will kill you. These are Mexicans. They will kill you, not only you, but your family and your dog. And dad's like, I've got this. <laughs> so exactly. that, was, that was the interview process. And we went up there a few times. What happened, and, and Tommy Allen had served prison time and had never ratted anybody out. So he had done his time without telling on anybody. And that's where I got a lot of my mentality going forth in my criminal career right there. You never rat. You know, you do the job that you're supposed to do. So uh, what had happened was, is Tommy serves his time out, but the law enforcement in the area, they still had a grudge against him. Because Tommy Allen, I mean, Tommy Allen, and here's the thing about criminals, and I was the same way to agree. Tommy Allen provided for all the children in the hollow where he lived. So Tommy Allen, and I've talked to people who knew Tommy at that point. Tommy Allen bought clothes and shoes for every child in Glomar Hollow while he was breaking the law. All right. So there was this dichotomy that went on with Tommy, but the law enforcement hated him. The sheriff at, the, at that point in time, this is before dad could actually start flying drugs. The sheriff one day calls up Tommy Allen, says, Tommy, we've got a warrant for you. Come on in. And Tommy Allen's like, I'm not coming in. You're going to have to come and get me. And Pearl Couch was the sheriff. Pearl's like, that's fine. We'll send someone up there to pick you up. So they send a state trooper. They send a sheriff's deputy. He kills one and puts the other in a wheelchair for life. And a six-hour shootout ensues. And they killed Tommy Allen Combs that day. And Dad decided that probably flying drugs back and forth across the Mexican border was not a good idea. <laughs> see, I see that. Here's, here's the part that I think about that. You know, our Uncle Roy... Our Uncle Roy. <laughs> yeah. And so Uncle Roy was like the kingpin. And so, yeah, you know. For those who don't know, so, so Hazard, Kentucky, that's, that's where this we're is, from. How much do we say? Hazard, Kentucky is one of these areas that unemployment is very high. Corruption is very high as well. Now, this is Hazard, Kentucky like the Dukes of Hazard. Now, the Dukes of Hazard was set in Georgia. Yeah. But we had a county judge in Hazard, Kentucky, that really took to the Dukes. So he got a white Cadillac with the horns on the front. He used to dress in a white suit. Yeah. And he called himself Boss Hog. Well, <laughs> that was not Uncle Roy. No. Uncle Roy was just... Uncle Roy ended up owning a lot of property. Started off yeah, as... Ended up. Started off driving a milk truck... Right. For some some way, I'm not I'm not saying how, but somehow he was able to go from driving a milk truck to becoming a huge, huge multimillionaire. 
Right. Like, very influential in the Like in he the, owned a coal company and owned and all he, kinds of stuff. He owned like the shopping center. Right. Ends up <laughs> mysteriously being assassinated a few years ago. Him and his wife were assassination style murder. Someone comes in the home, gets them down on their knees, blows their brains out. Right. A very assassination style, right? So there was certainly some sort of criminal activity involved. Absolutely. And Tommy Allen was was part of this, this oh, yeah. crime syndicate. Oh, yeah, too. Absolutely. So <laughs> Tommy Allen was part of that. Dad, of course, decides not to fly helicopters <laughs> at that point. And we're still, this is the whole thing, we were still kind of going broke the entire time, right? Well, I think the thing was you can't support a spending habit on you know, working a couple of weeks here and a couple right. of weeks there. The the means was there, but there was always something else happening. There was always, you know, dad would try to work, but mom wanted to be in eastern Kentucky with right. her family. And, I, you know, I got to say it for dad, and I know you, go, you hold a lot of anger toward him. I do. But the man, he tried his best to provide. You know, he would work his ass off. He did. He, he tried his best to provide. Yes. I think the fault with dad. He let her. Well, and he was, an ob- you know, I try to cover for the guy because I, 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 I see it now as he was an abuse victim too. He was an adult, but he was an abuse victim and he, he had never been through abuse like that before. And if you've never been through that, how do you know how you're going to handle it? Yeah. He couldn't, he couldn't break away from her. You know, right. there was mental abuse there was physical abuse well she told him she said she tried was going to, to murder drive him. him several times yeah she and, said she was going to drive him to commit suicide and then she would use us too i'm sure as leverage with him Absolutely. and it was just constant and then but he was responsible in my mind in that he knew what she was doing and he went along with it you're right and you're he right. let her do that i mean he saw her abusing us well, he on a regular basis, and, and he did not stop he her. Should've. He and did I, not. He did not take us. Right. I think he because didn't he was scared. <laughs> yeah, there was never anybody. That's that's the kicker. Yeah. There was never anybody to save us. Yeah, he didn't save us. Never. And so that's what I blame him with. No, I understand that. And, and with me, I, I try to, and I think I have gotten to the point where I'm like, you know, I understand you were, and I don't, I'm not asking you to get to that point. From my viewpoint, it's it's he was an abuse victim. He just simply didn't know what to do. If you look at abused women yeah. in, in those types of relationships, maybe that's what it they was. They don't they don't know what to do. They let the abuse go on. So I, I, that's my viewpoint. I don't I don't I don't think your viewpoint is wrong no, whatsoever. No, no, it's right? fine. The the other thing, the other big crime thing with dad, and this is what I mentioned before, what got us to Panama City. And he did have that mentality too. He did. He did. He, he, he had, had that, that. He had that same... little. That, that tweak in him. <laughs> right. Of, here's what we're going to do. And isn't this a great idea? And so, and, and I think what you're alluding to is one night, so he, he went back, he, he, he gave up on flying drugs back and forth across the border. He goes back to mining coal. And this happened, this went on for a few more months, maybe up to a year. Then one night, he used to watch 60 Minutes all the time. And 60 Minutes had this segment on about the drug trafficking happening in Miami, Florida. And they were showing the pallets of cash, the tables of cocaine. And he's locked into it, man. I mean, he is locked into that segment. And my mom is like, damn, he's never paid attention to a segment like this before. 
So the segment ends. He looks over at mom and he was like, I think I need to go down and be a cop in Miami, Florida. And it's like they were on the same page all of a sudden. My mom looks at him and she's like, that's a really good idea. Yep. So mom had, she had been working at the hospital, had faked a fall, had sued the hospital. They had given her a settlement of like $2,500 and then a lifetime check of $36 a month was what it was, something like that. So they take the, the settlement, which was like $2,500. They sell what they can in the house, which they round up like $4,000. They rent a U-Haul truck, put the rest of the shit in the truck, and we start heading south on I-75. We get in Miami to Dade County. We get in Miami the night the Miami riots broke out. And, and I'm not sure you, you know I what I do remember. Happened. But what it, the reason the, the riots had broken out, this black guy, Arthur McDuffie was his name. Several months prior to that night, he had been in a car chase. The cops had been chasing him on the highway. Arthur McDuffie had, gotten, had wrecked his car. The cops had dragged McDuffie out of the vehicle and literally beaten the guy to death. And then the cops had covered it up. So the riots break out when the truth comes out that, hey, they beat the shit. They beat this guy to death. That happens. The news reports come out. The city explodes. We get down there that night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Impeccable timing. Great timing. We stayed at a Days Inn that was located right across this underpass. And under the underpass were all these homeless people that lived. Yes, so, I remember that. So we could look out of our hotel window and see the homeless people. They had a pool. Was it a Days Inn? It was a Days Inn. I remember that, like the, I remember thinking, this place is really shady. Oh, yeah, because they had a pool. We weren't and, allowed and to swim in the pool. And that was coming from us living in the basement. Absolutely. <laughs> and we weren't allowed to swim in the pool because of all the homeless people. Mom was scared we would be raped. So we, we hold up in the hotel room. Dad goes to cop training the first day, comes back with this whole attitude of, oh, yeah, this is going to work. And here was his plan for those who don't know or can't get it. His plan was to happen upon a drug deal, let them keep the drugs, he would keep the cash, and we'd be set for life. And I pointed out to him, won't they just kill you? And he was like, no. And I was like, why not? Oh, they would never do that. So he goes to cop school the first day, comes back, oh, it'll work fine. We go around looking for rental places. Rent's popping out. Now, this is 1979, 1980. Rent is at like at $1,200 to $1,600 a pop, and they're shitting where they're geared right there. Well, we don't have that kind of money. Dad goes to the cop training the next day, comes back scared to death. We have to leave. Mom has already decided we have to leave because she thinks everyone's going to get raped by the homeless guys across the way. So what had happened with cop training, during the testing, the real Miami-Dade police officers come in and arrest nine people for outstanding warrants who were trying to become police officers <laughs> <laughs> for, for probably the exact same reason that dad was trying to become a police officer. So they decide that Miami is not for them. By this point, we're, we're down on money. We've already ran out the mileage on the U-Haul, so it's 25 cents a mile for every single mile we're going from this point on. They start heading north on I-75, 
no idea where the hell they're going until they, they stop at a rest stop and they both get to talking and they remember they've spent spring break at Panama City Beach when they were children. That's what, that, that right there is what decided us on Panama City. <laughs> I often wondered if it wasn't because of her ex-boyfriend. Well, I think that probably that was, was part of it, right? Bert, and I forgot what his name, it was Bert, Bert Caldwell. Bert Caldwell, that was that dude's name. So I think that dad, she didn't mention that the boyfriend was there but at the rest stop, they had a conversation. He had spent spring break there. She says, I spent, sp we can go there. It's not that expensive. It's just up here. We can start a new life. So he gets there. We, we rent a place. I think we only had, by this point, we've got, you know, they've got a couple of grand on them. So they ended up renting a, the first house they could find because we couldn't afford to keep paying the hotel bills. They rented a place. Dad, the only job he could get was 7-Eleven. Mom gets a job as a nurse long enough to See Dad off to work, starts screwing around, seeing Bert Caldwell, all these other people, and then it goes from there. But that was, uh, you know, that was Dad, man. I mean, he uh, he worked really hard. He tried. He worked he his ass off. He always tried to have a job, and he worked his ass off. He worked super hard. Yeah. I remember. Do you remember moving? Oh yeah. Every time we were in three different houses. Yep. Before Mom finally said we're going up for the weekend for before she finally left Dad's funeral. Yeah. yeah. We moved three times, and do you remember who did the moving? Dad did. Dad and you and I. Yep. We did the entire move. And, you know, it got so bad that, uh, because I was scared she, that he was either going to leave or that she was going to kill him. It got so bad, I would, and we said the same thing. Every night we went to bed, we'd say, good night, sweet dreams, I love you. That's what we'd tell each one of them. And I got to the point, because I was so scared, that he was not going to be there in the morning. You'd say, see you in the morning. I'd say, see you in the morning. Yeah. Because in, in that child's mind of mine. You were committing to it. I thought that if he would say, see you in the morning, that he would be there in the next the day is what happened. And he always was. He always, he always was. was. It was. It was typically her that did the leaving. You know, he did the in one fact, thing. In fact, I don't remember him ever leaving. No, he never did. He never did. And Even what, when uh, he filed for divorce, she had left him. Yeah. Yes, she loved him, but he was always there. And I was always in the position of, I have to keep them happy. Yeah. Somebody has to stay with mom and make sure she's happy. Yeah, he always, he was always just, he just wanted to, uh, you know, I, I think back, I wonder what type of life everyone would have had if she would have just not been crazy, not been abusive. I mean, he just, I think that it would have been a good life for everybody, you know, because he did want to work. He did want to have things. He did want to do good for people. It's just it didn't hurt, turn out that way. No. I wonder. I think it would have been better for us, and, and this is part of my anger and part of my problem with him, is that instead of letting her have us, I almost felt like we were an offering. You know, I'll let you keep them if you leave me alone. You know, I'm too scared of you to take them with me. So well, you keep them, and I'll maybe what, that will keep we've you We've actually talked about that. He and I, have we've talked about that. And the truth of the matter is, is that he didn't have the money. To take us. To take us. 
So I think it's a little deeper than that. I think a lot of it, certainly because he was, he didn't have any money. We were going completely broke. All right. So he couldn't take us. He couldn't physically support us at that point. Not only that, but at the same time, I view that through, you know, how long it took to, to reconnect with him and everything. But I think that he, he viewed me and you through the frame of our mother. You know, that, that type of mentality that she had, that he viewed us as an extension of her to yeah. a degree. I think that was a lot of the out of sight, out of mind stuff that when she finally leaves that he's like, you know, like you did with mom. Yeah. Not talking to her for over a decade now because it's healthier for you to disconnect completely. I think that he, uh, for him, that he couldn't separate me and you from mom. Yeah. And it was healthier for him if he was going to survive that he had to do that. And I said, that's a tough, for me, that's a tough pill to swallow, man. I know. That you're going to... Um, basically do that that you feel you have to do that in order to continue to survive as a person to this day i don't know what to think of that i really don't yeah it's it's, it's disapp disappointing to say the least <laughs> it's a little it's a little it's just, <laughs> i you know i always think of i'm like i thought to myself he's going to come and he's going to see what's going on and he's going to save stop us. It. Just stop it. You know, he will. Like when you had your breakdown in the elevator. Right. And we'll talk about the, the, the breakdown and all that stuff the next episode. I really thought when he, I was like, he'll come up and he'll see what's going on. Yeah. And that'll be the end of this. And we will be, we'll be free. You know, we'll be safe. We'll be loved. We'll be taken care of. And, We'll be okay. Doesn't turn out like that sometimes. No. <laughs> you know? No, no. That's that's a naive child's view of somebody's going to come save you. And I think biggest lesson in my childhood was there's nobody going to come save you. Now, if you don't do it yourself, no one's going to do it for you. No. And, you know, that's I one of the lessons. I think that's the lesson that, we uh, learned. Well, and it, I think you learned that lesson a lot sooner than I did. You know, I, with me, I don't think that I, expe I, I expected people to save me. I think I understood that, that I had to do that. But, you know, with my, my relationships going through my life, I think it was always me trying to save someone. Yeah, you know? I think you were put in that role because you heard it so much as we were growing up. Take care of your sister and you did you tried so hard to take care of me and protect me and there was so many times i know you protected me and you you did your best and i really appreciate it but i know that there was really no saving and the truth of the matter was you can't even save yourself when you're yeah, a kid yeah can't even save yourself you can't let alone somebody else can't even save yourself and so you've got that guilt that you deal with you know I felt like I should protect my brother. But the truth of the matter is, a little kid can't even protect themselves. No, no, and you've let got alone somebody. And you're else. surrounded with adults that won't protect you or can't. No, no. And yeah. So but anyway. Well, guess what? <laughs> I'm not sure what else to say. So we're gonna you know, I know what to say about mom. I do. And I love my dad. I think dad is a good man. I think, you know, I, 
I see him uh, frequently now. I talk with him, and I think he's come to terms with a lot of the stuff. And I think he regrets, has a lot of regrets about that. You know, I, I can see the positives hearing you talk about it. I still cannot forgive him. Well, I'm, I'm not asking I, you to. I can't I forgive her, <laughs> and I can't forgive him because yeah. he was an enabler, and he let it happen. He did. And he, he did. let it happen. And, you know, even when we were grown, he said to me when you went to jail, he said, when he gets out, I'm going to take care. I'm going to step up. I'm going to take care of your brother. I'm going to make sure he has a job and a vehicle right. and get him everything he needs to get him, you know, lined out. And he did not do that. And I cannot forgive him <laughs> for that. Instead, he said he was going to do that. And he did not. In right. fact, he tried to use you for well, another scheme of his. And, and I want to be fair about that. I want to be fair about that. I, I think you, you, but what you're alluding to is that on the escape and, and the crime, the type of crime I was committed, he wanted to be engaged with that. And I think that what yeah, I saw... he saw it as a money-making opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that what I... And we've talked about that. He and I have talked about that. I think that uh, from my viewpoint, and maybe that's just because that's the only way that I can survive, is to have this viewpoint. But I, from my viewpoint, I think that what it was is that he, had, he hadn't talked to me in 25 years. Oh, yeah. I think that he was trying to reconnect and that he, he still viewed me through that frame, that criminal mind of my mom. I think that may have been the only way he knew how to communicate. That's what I tell myself. Whether that's true or not, that's what I have to tell myself. So it gave you all something to bond over? No, no. no I think that he, he, he felt that was the only way he could communicate. I saw that. And I chose to manipulate him into helping me escape and all these other things. Okay? And whether that's true or not, for me, that has to be true. For me, in order for me to, to go forward and, and basically survive. I, I can't, I cannot accept that he came back in my life to use me. Okay? So in, in, instead of accepting that, I say that he came back in my life and, and wanted to reconnect. And the only way he knew how to do that was by having that type of conversation like that. And then I chose from that point to manipulate him into helping me. Okay? See, that, that, that in and of itself speaks to what a good person you really are. Well, I don't know about because that. <laughs> I look at both of them and I think I'm just angry. I'm pissed off because I'm like, you know what? Our whole lives have just been some opportunity for you to use us as an excuse for whatever you've done, whatever bad thing that's happened to you, <laughs> whatever sacrifice you see yourself as making. It was all because of us. We were the scapegoats or you could use us for this money making opportunity or that right. money making opportunity. Or how about just somebody that needs me and make me feel special. No. But you're a good person. Totally messed up. But <laughs> it, it was the life you were brought into. It was what was expected. It was what was taught. It was what was modeled. It's what you were told to do and shown to do and had to do and forced to do. Because. Forced to do. Well, to here's survive. the thing. I, I Who don't... paid the water bill? Who paid You're the right. electricity bill? You're right. Who brought food in the house? Who had a trans who had transportation? You're right. Who provided those things? It was not the adults 
in the get-go. You know, I, I want to point out that, that people had worse upbringings than I did. You, for example. They did. You had, There's always somebody who has it you, harder. You go on to be a good parent, a great teacher. I was the kid who just kept breaking the law. So I chose to do that. All right? That was my choice. But you were set up for that. The flaws were pointed out in you. You were manipulated from the time you were little. I can remember mom and dad, mom and dad, calling you into their bedroom multiple occasions, having you stripped down and criticizing like you weren't even there. <laughs> like they were looking at, I don't know, a car. And <laughs> what's wrong This car's here? a little overweight. Is that normal? <laughs> is that normal? Does that even look right? You know, what? Yeah. Who does that? That, no. As an adult, I look back on it. No, that was nowhere in the scope of normal. All right, so that was parts three and four of the Anglerfish podcast. I want to thank you all for listening once again. We close out every show by saying, stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. At the end of the day, just do the right damn thing. I'm Brett Johnson. Until next time, thank you for listening.